Miss Macintosh, My Darling, Chapter 38. And about other characteristics and elementary features which had singled Cousin Hannah out from the average individual, and ascertainable way of life if there was such a way, my mother was indefinite, as might be expected in so many years, after she had last seen that great captain of extremes. One would seem never to reconcile herself with life, no one knowing exactly what the, what that year was, even to this plaintive moment. Besides, my mother's mind was clouded, veiled by other dreams, dreams perhaps of an immortal love which time, whom time or snow should never touch, just as Mr. Spitzer, being as one dead, was never noted for his power of reconciling opposites or for his good judgment. His capacity to remember these individual traits, and perhaps he had referred the cold and marble, and perhaps he had preferred the cold and marble face, the unremem unremembered face of an ideal love. Only with greatest reluctance could he be prodded to remember the formidable captain of the lost suffrage troops, and then only for a while, remembering that she had forgotten him. He must be prodded and forced to remember, for that matter, even the most important events, those of his own restricted life, which had sharp limitations. Or perhaps it was always possible, as anybody knew who knew him, his abstractions, seeming so like indifference, were caused by his enraptured thinking of the beautiful music of the spheres, filling all space with its sound as of the human will, music his dead brother heard, but which Mr. Spitzer could not hear, could only imagine in the silence, chords of the great sounding board of the irrational cosmos vibrating through seven deathless eternities, or he heard in this dreamland to which he had come, vibrations of the seven-stringed harp, each string bearing the music of soul and spirit and astral body flying like a moth between two stars. Or there were polar lights accompanied by strong sounds, whistling, hissing, crackling music as of the wind. My mother thought of the great traveler. As to Cousin Hannah, her chief distinction, other than the movement to which, quite unnecessarily, she had sacrificed her life, had been that she had traveled to the outermost reaches of space that my mother envied her to this day, much as if her journeys had not ceased, as if she were in clouds and whirlwinds, she had always come with a whistling sound. My mother had used to greet her by saying, as the chandelier shook as the lights dimmed, Hello, traveler, and where do you come from now? The lonely cause of suffrage had seemed to my mother to be quite unworthy of Cousin Hannah's adventuresome spirit in the far places. Of course, and the unflagging efforts had seemed a great waste of time, for time would itself level all pinnacles and all powers, including that great rider though it was not to be trusted, my mother's point of view, continually shifting, for all might have been quite different from her report, and Cousin Hannah not so obdurate, not so courageous as she had seemed. Perhaps it was that great captain who was weak, my mother who was strong, as if only the most delicate creature might endure. My mother had always managed, perhaps without wishing to do so, for she had almost no willpower and could not concentrate unless on that which was not there, to distort even the most familiar reality, to turn aside the rushing stream or draw constellations into flights like birds, to see life in her own clouded way which was, of course, untrustworthy as to the great things and as to the little things, just as Mr. Spitzer plaintively knew, tapping with his cane upon the sidewalk, and she... And had she ever trusted him or his masculine eminence, his higher wisdom which could overlook and dismiss accidents as mere episodes of no importance in the history of a long life or a short life? One who had followed her descriptions of anything would have found himself much confused, even in a city which he might know like his own sad, empty heart or loose flagstones. So it was not to be believed that Cousin Hannah had greeted my mother by remarking, 
Babylon is fallen. My mother undoubtedly misunderstood us to time, place, person, opium getting so many changing phantoms. Perhaps it was the great gold-eyed chamois to whom she spoke when there was no other visitor. Perhaps it was an alpine crystal hunter who had cut great steps in the ice. For my mother's mind must always have been wandering far and wide, traveling though she herself should remain this beautiful and unawakened corpse, the cold and frigid beauty of the past, this dead beauty who, spending her life in the aura of a lost romance, had never loved, had never been awakened by a mortal or god. Surely my mother had evaded, wherever possible, the great renunciation of life, going by all other roads, and had preferred never the immediate moment of realization, but an unearthly romance, which should suffer no deterioration or change brought by harsh experience, inasmuch as it was not subjected to these mortal laws of change and chance, and these accidents like the great snow avalanches falling over the leaden roofs, with the sound of church bells tolling for the lost crystal hunter. And surely she had loved that love which never was. It was more powerful than any love which should be realized in this mortal sphere. The heavenly bridegroom none should see, the lover never to be discovered on this clouded earth, never, unless he should come in death's disguise, carrying her away. So that, though many years had passed, she would imagine that she was this great courtesan with a snow pompadour and snowbirds in her hair, and her memories of her undying conquests, innumerable triumphs, innumerable loves which had never been hers. For if there had not been one, then there must be many, my mother dreamed, many eleventh-century lords fighting for her hand, many great conquistadors, sahibs in winding cloth of gold, black and white eunuchs making war. How beautiful my mother had been as a young girl, when heavily veiled, like that face too beautiful to be seen on earth. She had been herself a great traveler, visiting many strange countries and distant cities, not of those countries, or so she dreamed now, dreamed of her many fleeting loves, loves starting up from a single glance, flickering like flames, like stars spawned nowhere, her head roaring with circular winds, dark oral winds and crystal visions multiplying. She dreamed of the great stone dogs, the stone huntsmen awakening into life, dreamed of fiery fishes upon a far horizon. She talked to dead men with burning eyes. She dreamed of Cousin Hannah, who, in my mother's bedroom, had walked back and forth, rattling great iron keys, striking against the stone wall, striking against the empty air, or fighting a mirror with her jeweled sword, as if no time had passed or dimmed this glass. But when had my mother last seen this great visitor? When in death's dateless night, which knew no beginning and no end? Yet though there was no time, though all were immortal, one was always missing as if there were time, for there was this loss. Oh, how happy, happy, happy my mother would have been, she still insisted, and had explained long ago to all old cousin Hannah, with her furies and rages of regret. If only the great gambler had lived. If only my mother could have enjoyed the company of this man of great wit but little brain, no legal knowledge in his head, no in intellectual pretensions, whatever, no desire to impress anyone with his solitary personality, no music of refrain in his heart. Though yet, if it had been Hawkeem who had thoughtlessly died, she would also have been, of course, quite regretful, at least in a transient moment perhaps forgotten now. She admitted at the beginning, before she had become accustomed to the fact of Hawkeem's precariously continued life and Perone's death, uninterrupted by any stir of wind or wind upon another star, his death so complete and absolute that she could not imagine it. Sometimes she thought that only he lived. She had missed that gay brother in his bright cloak, but she might have missed old Joaquin with his definitive regrets, which were already a matter of habit long before his brother's shocking death, much like his dressing himself each morning in the correct clothing of his despair, as if for a funeral. 
his whispering, his tolling like some old town clock forever out of time. At least she had whisperingly admitted this sorrow to herself, if not to any other person who now remembered it, the great suffrage captain being no more, the fact that, whichever one had lived, she would have missed the absent one, the sense of her ineffable sorrow being so necessary to her and to her continued happiness. Her eyes blinded by her own brilliance, she could scarcely distinguish at times between her happiness and her sorrow, for the absence of anyone was like his presence. So that Mr. Spitzer, though feeling himself obliterated, often wondered why she should miss anyone. Here, where the heron-footed twelfth-century kings might well be visitors, causing the candle flames to gutter or stars to brighten in a dying wind. But she was obtuse. Explaining Perrone's absence and that which might seem like indifference, that which she had always known, even when he was alive, had he not been faithful through his absence and his prolonged neglect of her, she asked, and when had she last seen him? If he had shown her the slightest attention, if ever he had telephoned to her, left his calling card upon a jasper mantelpiece or marble cliff above the roaring waves, or left a bouquet of withered flowers, if he had paid the slightest homage of recognition to her love, she might have questioned his feeble love. He had expressed his love by his silence, his distance. Death had surely given no voice to that which had not been expressed in life. His love had not been corrupted by its finding any form of vulnerable human expression. No vehicle or image had been great enough to express his love, that which had left him absolutely speechless, silent, withdrawn, remote. That which others thought was his hatred was his love, my mother believed, his love greater than his hatred. He had been frightened by her beauty and her power. He had absolutely ignored her, for if he had come near, he would have been vulnerable, unable to resist the magnetism of her attractions, as he must surely have understood. Should he who never entered a battle lose it? Pretty men could love in pretty ways. Petty men could love in petty ways. But this unexpressed love was as heavy as all the stars. This dead love which never was and never would be real was the one undying love. So that my mother was bored by Mr. Spitzer's little attentions and dreamed of her escape long after it was possible. Should she never rise again, return to the world? Should she never again visit those beautiful cities of which she dreamed? The cloud-capped towers, shoulders of crumbling snow, hives of light, where a lost queen buzzed? Long ago she might have fled, leaving no trace. Cousin Hannah had invited the opium lady to come with her to Egypt and the far places, not, as might be supposed, to view the mysteries of the desert and stone tablets under the desert sand and mummies with long, wild hair and gold coins upon their eyes, mysterious amulets giving their true, secret identity. But to show, when she appeared at that great captain's side, that one could join her movement for reasons other than being ugly and old, that one could be both beautiful and independent of man, and if my mother had accepted these insistent invitations, or numerous others which were offered to her, brought by the couriers of every storm, her life must surely have taken a different course, different at least to this extent. She would perhaps have done, in actuality, all she dreamed of now. She would certainly never have spent her life in bed, enjoying her memories of the triumphs she had never experienced, the challenges she had never accepted, not even though they were those of that old suffragette with the burning eyes. My mother, if she had followed that urgent advice, that which was unasked for, that which was unwelcome, freely given as the wind, would have ridden in a balloon with four snow-white horses following a white bird through infinites of clouds, through infinities of clouds. Or possibly she could have picketed Buckingham Palace in a furious snowstorm, or ridden on horseback through city streets with her suffrage message. She would have visited the lands of somnolent Kurds, 
coming with such stealth that none could see her. Hers would have been a nomadic life, for she would have been a wanderer under the nomadic stars. She would have slept in many silken tents hung with gold and silver camel bells. She would have found herself locked many times in castles moated by black lakes, but she would have been triumphant managing her escape like the greatest escape artist. She would have deceived her jailers many times, passing the sky so many times that they might think she was the turnkey. Or perhaps she would have lived all her life in Italy where was, she believed, no necessity for her imagination, for every thought had already found its form of expression, and there was not this dreadful New England climate of the howling winter winds, sand grains sharp as stars. There were jeweled daggers and poisoned cups, there were centaurs on the roofs. She would not have given herself up to these evil dreams of a lost romance, a dead man playing a broken lute. She would not have ridden in her dreams in a funeral gondola black as a blackbird through the twisted canals of Venice as now, talking to someone whose face was masked, a dark gentleman she had never seen and would never see, and she would never have thought of those who were dead, the inverted reflections of doorways and faces, the oar bisecting the wing of the angel mirrored upon the flowing waters of the dream. Her life, instead of this escape from reality, would have been reality. Indeed, there was always some great cause which should exceed the dream and which should give meaning to life, my mother believed. No one should think of the shadowy substances of a dream, the marble heads, the folded wings, the tenebrous shades, the whirling autumn leaves, the snowflake falling on the cold, dead face of love. Indeed, my mother dreamed so much of Italy. Many travelers, seeing the shrouded house, said that the lady had gone to live in Italy, though others said that she was dead, and that was why the house was closed, why the windows were broken, why the centaur slept in the garden pillowed by stone, pillowed on stone. Why the old barouches with their gold fringes flying round did no more the sunken avenues. Why the pillars leaned upon the wind, why the snows piled up upon the roofs. Why the chimneys emitted no fire or smoke or cloud. Why the jewel boxes glittered with dim jewels. Why the mirrors remember the faces of the dead. Perhaps no one should think of that old New England suffragette, that great freebooter who had stormed so many fortified castles, donjons and walls and ankle towers and palaces of singing winds, equic voices. As my mother thought now of that great cavalier servant with her suffrage message, which seemed the opposite of love. For all base metals were transmuted by time into finest gold like that which lighted the clouds. But darkness and whirlwind remained. It's on life's essential mystery was that which never would be solved, not even by death, which should be the end of mystery. Not until Cousin Hannah was old and sick and dying, in fact, had my mother wondered as to that great lady's life in a personal sense, finding that, though illusions dissolve in the aqua fortis of memory, yet mystery increased, and other questions must be asked. Perhaps no human being could ever be entirely dismissed or understood. Life contained death as a cloud contained a passing star. But what was the cloud, and what was the star? Whom had Cousin Hannah loved, if not the image of the dead? She had wept if a snowflake touched her rain-mottled hand. A tear had streaked her granite cheek. Many tears had made great rivulets. She had wept if she heard a skirt whirling, rustling in the wind, though sometimes it was only the tide whispering upon a lonely shore, or white wing lifting in the wind. Yet at the time which had allowed no time for the memory of a dead love, no time for precious nostalgia or a task never to be finished, a cause never to be realized, her public activities in behalf of suffrage had seemingly spoken for themselves, having been sufficient and unmysterious and unequivocal in their majesty, requiring no explanation or afterthought, so that my mother had always felt, when confronted by that great captain with her burning message, a sense of guilt as to her own retirement from the heart of conflict, 
For espousal of dreams, poor opium dreams, which should not bear the test of reality, visions which should dissolve at a touch, she had felt guilty as to her entertaining of so many imaginary lovers in love, and rather envious of one who had seemingly espoused the cause. In quest of reality, and was wedded to it, not to the dead heart, the stone face of an unawakened, unawakening love. Such mysteries were beyond her understanding, it seemed, for she had seen all life in terms of her great cause, and watched not the nuances or rose quiverings in dusk. She herself certainly was never a cult, and the mysteries of the East had held no charms for her as for my mother sleeping through endless years in Stark House. Doubtless because the great traveler through narrow passes in desert cities and cities in clouds had seen the East as one who stares with lidless eyes, eyes blinded by sand and snow, and knew that beauty faded like a scepter with her approach. Her skin luminous as glass and seemingly composed of hard, angular grains, gritty as if it were made of particles burned by volcanic fires and terrible whirlwinds. She had been quite acute, shrewd, and sharp, steep, abrupt as a sharp curve upon a cliff to the eye, instantaneously brilliant to the hearing, piercing and shrill. And she had been sharp-witted, dashing and wild and reckless, and she had been like a finely-tempered blade, cold and nipping as the winter air, trenchant and incisive and keen, acutely poignant, fine-pointed and sharp-edged, never oblique, never obtuse. Such masculine virtues could not have been admired by a sick lady, though my mother recognized now that she could not have competed with them, and so at the time they had not made nearly so vivid an impression as now they made an inaccurate memory. A widely netted sign catching only the biggest star of fish, moths and butterflies escaped my mother's memory. This great, dazzling visitor had seemed so sure of herself and her flaming cause, the fixedness of her relentless purpose, the noble clarity of her self-forgetful motives, her ways which could never be turned aside by whirlwinds, it seemed, or wandering snowflakes, avalanches falling like snow, Niagara's in her path, roarings. Not even when trains were stopped, buried by snow, was she stopped, buried. Her light had burned. She had burned like a live coal. Snow buried many cities, but did not bury her. Nights when all others were frozen in the track, she went on. She had despised frailty as if it were a reproach to her unless it was itself an aspect of her undying strength. For had she not sacrificed her life and all her personal interests to her grand idea fixe, the rescue of pale ladies held by one-eyed ogres greater than death itself or monstrous love? There had seemed no rivalry between Cousin Hannah and other hierarchies of buried self, that which needed no interpretation, coming as an afterthought, knowing elegaic music like that remembered now, the memory of the memory of music. Music had never filled for her the vast amplitude of space as for Mr. Spitzer, writing now his nocturne memory of her. She had heard the thinnest whisper, the faintest flute whisper in a glassy cloud or winding horn upon a distant mountain peak, or a lady's skirt lifting in a vagrant wind. But she had not heard the thunderclap, the cloudburst, the cry of the sea bird in the storm rising to meet the cloud. Her will had cut away the non-essentials, and she had transfigured time. She seemed never to have broken the trice she had kept with her own imperious will, and she had seemed exceptionally sure of the follies of others, the, the, the divertisements, the pretensions, the foolish whims, the wasted graces, the wandering airs, such as my mother's opium dreams that she had found a stairway to heaven by means of which, continually ascending and descending, she could overhear the decrees and whisperings of the dead, 
buzzings of stars like paper wasps in the wasp-colored starlight, gossip of dynasties which were no more on earth and perhaps had never been. Cousin Hannah must have believed that the dead were silent, that only the living whispered, sighed, breathed, moved. Her great battles had been with the living, it had seemed. Her impersonal energies quick to react and apparently allowed to her no final rest. Her energies were like sparks starting of themselves. There were always sparks blowing in her path. Unlike my mother, who was cold and lonely and withdrawn, Cousin Hannah must have lived, though she was versatile, in only one dimension, that which could be measured in a single line. My mother had pitied the great lady, naturally, at the same time envying her the stark elegance of her salvation. She had survived to old age simply by fortitude, by putting aside all thoughts of self-protection such as might have killed another lady, by riding against great mountains by riding against great mountain peaks swirling like tormented seas of snow and light. Where were those great kings whom she had come to slay? She was like someone who was in perpetual motion, being never twice the same, and the world perpetual was that which had always frightened my mother, having a special significance for her, this jeweled corpse, for whom all conflicts should have ended long ago. Or was it Cousin Hannah who had already perished in some great conflict, my mother who had lived, she had sometimes asked, wonderingly musing aloud upon the terrible fact that action was no necessary criterion or measure of life. And indeed, one sometimes sees in dead things action, in dead matter, a sudden revivification suggestive of life, as when the dead tree boughs move and break in the wind, or the dead eye suddenly moves, winks in the wind. Had not my mother often observed such phenomena, the thrust of the dead swordsman, the cry of the dead seagull drifting on angelic wings above the snowstorm, especially when a lapse of consciousness occurred when she could no longer observe. There were these gleamings of far, sudden lights at empty windows, these irrational, mystical, four-faced doorways through which there stole, when no one else was looking, the mystery of the fact which had retained its mystery, the terror and the beauty, the wildness and the pang of human life, of those who brought the fog with them. My mother had watched with bewildered fascination Cousin Hannah's regal ears, her wild grimaces, which seemed almost beyond possibility, the raven feathers shadowing her cheeks, the paradoxical attitudes, so much like something my mother might have dreamed, scarcely more surprising than if Cousin Hannah had been the incarnation of Clovis, or Cuthbert, or Crispin, or Charles the Mad, or the Beloved, or the Bold, or some such old creature come to transient life in my mother's presence. One of the perennial dead, those who, though long hidden under the frozen ground, yet continue, bearing with every spring new flowers, sad as the memory of a preternatural spring. My mother had been naturally disappointed, sorry that her distinguished visitor was only, as usual, this sterile suffrage misanthrope who had never loved, this wild insurrectionist disrupting her dreams and causing other dreams to start, sorry that she was not a gentleman, sans pur et sans reproche, that she was not the hero of a lost romance, that she was not even a mock hero an imitation of the reality that she was not a French chevalier who had traveled great distances or a Red Cross knight or Richard Coeur de Lion, that she was not the early French kings carrying the Oriflames or some old Ronaldo riding through centuries of dreams, his Bayard, his wonderful bay steed, which had never grown old, though he had grown old. Sorry that she was not the Prince Charming to awaken the Sleeping Beauty, to awaken all the servants in the house and the birds in the garden and the life-sized chessmen, those who had slept a hundred years. Her feelings of disappointment, however, were vague and short-lived, perhaps because someone had just announced a traveler from Spain, a viceroy or a lamplighter or a door had slammed in a distant part of the house. Someone was always coming, departing, for even then, so long ago, my dreaming mother, never quite sure of the reality of an external event, 
had been irresponsible as now, permitting herself that fitful inaccuracy which, in the ultimate sense beyond experience, as Mr. Spitzer had always timidly realized, might be more nearly accurate than truth itself would ever be, truth seeming only another precarious organization of the fleeting and mistaken dream. Did he who was his cape rustling timed his uncertain steps by tolling bells no better than she? Church bells always ringing might some day be right. Did he know better than she the time, the place, the person? Did he so much as know whether he was a man or a butterfly, a lost psyche drifting down the wind? And most people, it had been Mr. Spitzer's unfortunate observation, were at some level disoriented, unaware of the existing situation with reference to such apparently clear matters as time, place, identity of persons, even themselves, and they imagined what was not. How often had my mother seen, perhaps because she wished to ignore the factor of time, the boat moon rising at dawn, one star burning to port side, the eye of a porpoise, sun rising at twilight. How often, even here in her bedroom, she had been lost, wandering through labyrinth streets in a foreign city of changing signs. My mother's bright eyes were blurred and cobbled by her predisposed illusions, by nightshades and belladonna, and she could hardly keep awake for more than an extensive minute at a time, her erroneous dreams seeming to her, for obvious reasons, more real than life, even when there came one whose head was turreted. Lunacy reigned supreme, infecting even those most sane. The very atmosphere seemed infected by my mother's dreams, and perhaps, of course, her dreams had seemed more real to other people, too, than life could be. There was always that impossibility, more real than anything which seemed merely possible, at least to this old house by the roaring waves, this loony bin.